at least there's one place on Saturday or Sunday when people go to worship that they say, okay, I'm going to stay around for the coffee hour because we're going to have a good conversation. And I'm going to disagree with people who might say something, but I will still love them at the end of the day. That's Mike McCurry talking about his current work training pastors and congregational leaders at Wesley Seminary's Center for Public Theology. But he wasn't always doing that. In 1976, for five years, Mike served as press secretary for Senator Harrison Williams of New Jersey. In 1981, for two years, he was press secretary for Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan of New York. Starting in 1983, he held several leadership roles at the Democratic National Committee, including directing its communications before joining Bob Carey's presidential campaign. But then, in 1993, for two years, he was the leading spokesman at the Clinton State Department. And then, in the public service role he's today perhaps best known for, beginning in 1995, Mike served nearly four years as the White House press secretary in the Clinton administration. Mike is joined on the podcast by Karen Tumulty, a senior columnist covering national politics at the Washington Post, where she's worked since 2010. But like Mike, Karen is a marathoner, not a sprinter. Even already, with a journalism degree from UT Austin and an MBA from Harvard, she's had an amazing run as a journalist. If you read Karen's columns, you know already that she's even keeled in a deeply moral voice, speaking into everything from presidential races to the Congress, to immigration, to matters of conscience, including recently the abuse in the Catholic Church, her own tribe. And she's been at it for some time. Before the Post, for 16 years, Karen was a congressional correspondent at Time Magazine, where she covered the White House, including while Mike was press secretary. For 14 years prior, she was a lead national reporter at the LA Times, where in 1982, she won a Gerald Loeb Award, and in 1993, the Hood Award from the National Press Foundation. Today, Karen often appears on the PBS NewsHour and at Washington Week. And in 2013, while at the Post, she won the nation's Toner Prize for excellence in political reporting. So, over two decades ago, Mike stepped down from five successive visible roles in public service to focus on the inner life, including a theology degree. Karen raises some deeply probing and fascinating questions from what full truth-telling actually means at a White House podium, to landmark journalistic changes with a TV news cycle that today never stops, literally, to what norms presidential candidates, including Democratic candidates, should have when talking about their faith convictions on the campaign trail. And because Mike knew each of the Clintons well, and Karen is currently writing a book about Ronald Reagan's faith, the first-hand stories you'll hear them each relay about those two presidential families is worth the price of admission this episode. What would it look like for faith communities to better step up to the current moment? That, along with the mystery of how God actually intervenes in human life, has become the pressing and lifelong question of today's fascinating guest. Thanks for listening and enjoy the conversation. So, Mike, you and I have known each other an awfully long time. I think we first met on the 1988 Lloyd Benson campaign, and we survived the uh, Bob Carey campaign in 1992 together. But I think we worked most closely, I think, when I was White House correspondent at Time magazine and you were White House press secretary. 
And then come near the end of 1998, and the scandal that leads to President Clinton's impeachment is in full cry. You decide to walk away, not only from the White House, but essentially from your life in politics. How come? Well, I decided to leave long before any of the events that came out in the end of 1998, only because I was tired. And I think the press was tired of me, and I was tired of the press. And you can only have so much time in that job before you wear out your welcome. And I felt like my time had come. The average time duration for a White House press secretary, according to Martha Joint Kumar, who we both know very well, is about 2.8 years. And I had been there almost four years. And that was long enough. And I had two years before that at the State Department. So I'd been doing six years of daily briefings, and I was worn out. And I had little kids at home. And I just said, it's time to hang up the cleats and go home. It had nothing to do with the issues of the day or Clinton or what was in the news. It just was like basically you understand at some point where your mental capacity has taken you and what you can do and what you have to offer. And I had reached my point of limit at that point. And I think you were there. I think the press corps had said, we're tired of this guy. (laughs) Never. We'd like to get him off the stage, too, and bring on someone new. It was a good transition. And the best advice I had from a friend of ours, Doug Sosnick, he said, set the time that you're going to leave well in advance so there's no issue about you're leaving because of this, that, or the other. And then you're ready to go. And that's what I did. And I said, I'm leaving at the end of 1998, and that'll be it. And it worked out pretty well. I have to confess, I went off and went on the lecture circuit and made a lot of money and paid for three college tuitions as a result. And that is one of the benefits of being in one of those jobs, even though that's somewhat now controversial. But it was a great reward for having spent a lot of time. Well, you also, in the course of your career, early in your career, you were sort of scandal adjacent with the uh, first senator that you worked for as well, right? Well, in my early career as a young press secretary on Capitol Hill, my first employer was Senator Harrison Williams, who went to jail in the Abscam investigation. Anyone who watched the movie American Hustle knows what that was all about. But I learned a couple of valuable lessons there, which is don't go prying for information if you don't need it, because I ended up spending eight hours in front of a federal grand jury (laughs) as a result of my conversations with Senator Williams, and to be very circumspect about what you learn and what you hear, because you're going to be required at some point to tell the truth, as I did in front of a federal grand jury for eight hours in Brooklyn one day. But... You learn your lessons. So when, fast forward, we got to the Monica Lewinsky episode at the White House, I told all of my staff, said, nobody talk to the president outside the hearing of one of our legal counsel or White House counsel people because you'll put yourself in some kind of legal jeopardy as a result of that. And that was a lesson that all of my staff, not one of my staff on the press staff at the White House had to hire a lawyer. And I did, that I did. made you unusual in the Clinton White House. Correct. And I didn't have to, and none of my staff had to, because we actually followed a very strict protocol. 
around that. But when you see powerful people up close, when you are the person who is explaining this political figure to the rest of the world, but you have a chance to see their human failings, do you become cynical? I mean, how do you sort of maintain the idealism that I think gets most people into politics to begin with? First of all, remember, we're all human and we are all sinners. And I think it's really important to recognize that the flaws that we all have carry with us in vocation in life and whatever we do, and that we are forgiven. I mean, I think that's a very important aspect of what we believe, certainly in the Christian tradition. It makes you very humble. And one of the things I reminded myself every day when I went to work was nobody cares about Mike McCurry's opinion. They want to know what President Bill Clinton thinks. And so I worked hard to figure out what was in his head and what was he thinking and what was his motivation because that's what I really had to report on ultimately to the press. And I took that very seriously and I took preparing for the daily press briefing very seriously. It is a great cause of alarm to me that we are not doing those kinds of briefings daily now in the current administration. And I think we lose something when we're not holding accountable those people who've got the information that the public needs to know. Because the public has a right to know and the government has an obligation to tell. So, did you ever find yourself having to lie for somebody you work for to say something you just flat out knew wasn't true? No. Never had to lie. Never was asked to lie. As I famously once said to Helen Thomas, who you and I both knew, a legendary correspondent for United Press International and White House correspondent for a long time, I said, you can never lie, but sometimes you have to tell the truth slowly. (laughs) And what I meant was, like, you can't tell everything you know, but you can never steer the reporters away from the truth. You have to kind of keep them aimed at the truth, even if you can't say absolutely everything you know. You can't say like, oh, yes, by the way, we're going to have a cruise missile attack 24 hours from now. You don't know that, but I can't tell you that right now. There's a limit to how much truth you can tell at a certain moment, but you can never willingly take people away from the truth. We're not going to dwell on the, the current situation here, but... You <laughs> well, know, it's, we, it's we, upside down. I mean, yes. look, look, we have to stipulate that we are just in an incredible upside down situation now where none of the normal rules prevail. The American people get to decide whether that's what they want or not. So when you decided to walk away from the White House and then you went and earned your kids' college tuition. How did you find your way into the religious life? I got out of the White House, and my senior pastor at my United Methodist Church out in little Kensington, Maryland, where I live, we're so glad you're done with that job because now we have a real job for you. We want you to be superintendent of the Sunday school. And I said, well, why me? My, my wife has taught Sunday school. I've never taught Sunday school. He said, well, we just think this would be the right assignment for you. And so I took that, <laughs> took that on and realized I didn't know anything about what I was doing. So I took some courses at Wesley Theological Seminary, which is here in uh, Washington, a Methodist-affiliated seminary. 
And that ended up being liberating for me because I took some courses in lay leadership and church school education and stuff like that, and then decided I should really pursue that. And my dean of the faculty at the time came to me and said, you should really take my course in Hebrew Bible. I'm going to teach it one last time before I retire. And I said, well, Bruce, why would I do that unless I'm going to get a degree? And he said, yeah, you should get a degree. So I ended up getting a degree in theology from Wesley Theological Seminary and went on and became a member of the Board of Governors of the institution and now a faculty member. And can you take us back a little bit, Mike, to a little bit earlier? I mean, you grew up in Berkeley and you experienced Sunday school life and then some rabble-rousing that was happening around the corner. I mean, can you talk a little bit about your place in the church pews versus in the activist space? Well, yeah, as a youth group kid in the 1970s, I grew up actually in a congregational United Church of Christ congregation in Northern California. We would get together and go over to Berkeley when they were doing anti-war protests, anti-Vietnam protests. We actually went first time over there for the free speech Mario Savio demonstrations, which probably nobody remembers <laughs> unless they're very old at this point. But it was a very activist congregation and had a belief that you should be kind of present and witnessing at the points that there were real conflict. And of course, in Northern California in the 1970s, late 1960s, early 1970s, lots of points of conflict around the war, around other issues. That was a gave me kind of a social activist perspective that I think carried with me for a long time. I just have to say for the record, I had the privilege of going to a UU service in Berkeley one time with my grandparents. And the person, when they prayed, they said, okay, I'm just going to be honest. When I pray, I'm praying to whom it may concern. <laughs> well, that's the UU tradition. Right. If you have a different Trinitarian perspective, you're praying for a different outcome because you believe God is imminent and on earth and in life and with us. And it was, of course, in the presence of Jesus the Christ but we believe that there's a Holy Spirit that is with us, that is present, and can come to us even in the midst of the travails we have now. And that's a source for me of great hope. I mean, I sometimes get despondent about our current political situation. I uh, wake up and angry at the headlines that I read. But then I think, you know, there is a different spirit. I mean, I don't think God wills everything that happens. I don't think that there is a great God plan that monitors everything because I think God is, I'm what we call in theology, a process theologian. I believe that there is a process by which God incorporates what we do. I, the analogy I would use is like if you have a GPS system and you make a wrong turn, and your GPS thing said, recalculating, turn left. And I think that's kind of what God does. God sort of takes what we do, processes it, and then gives us an alternative path forward. In your years in politics, did you feel that as well? I mean, I, and tell me if I remember this incorrectly, but I seem to recall that you like didn't do the Sunday shows because that was Sunday morning and 
you set that time aside. Our rule was Sunday morning was for, actually this was, and you appreciate this, is a lesson I learned from Ken Duberstein, who was a Republican aide for... Ronald Reagan's last White House chief of staff. Correct, correct. And one of the great pieces of advice he gave to me, he said, the Sunday morning shows are for people who make real policy. They're not for staff. They're not for... You know, the hangers on around you. So you should not do that. And I, frankly, I did not watch any of those shows because <laughs> I was with my family. It was like the only family time I had was Sunday morning. And we'd go to church and do our stuff. And I actually had, in those days, before the internet, I had a car drove out and brought me transcripts of all of the Sunday shows and delivered them to me Sunday night. So I could kind of like get back into the rhythm before Monday morning. Like that's would be completely unbelievable now in the age of 24-7 information all the time. But I created some sanctuary time for myself so that I could actually stop and think and be with my family. And that was likely the only time I had because the rest of the week was going to be 24-7. Mike, tell our listeners, how full were those days? I mean, I know you guys have been on airplanes to Botswana together, so you probably know the business. 16-hour days? Is it 12-hour days? No. I mean, there was a rhythm to the day then, which was wake up in the morning, and you'd, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and listen to the BBC and then to NPR and then listen to the broadcasts locally and read the newspapers that were delivered on my doorstep every morning, read them. I liked ink on paper, so I liked reading the newspapers and holding them. And then I'd walk the dogs, and then I would sort of think through the day. And I was pretty much had 90% of my day planned out by the time I took my shower and went to the White House because I knew what the questions were, I knew how I was going to answer them, and then the rest of it was just fine-tuning for the rest of the day. You can't do that now. It goes nonstop all the time. And I have some sympathy for the people who are in the job. Um, Obviously, Ms. Sanders, who's currently got the job, because it goes all the time. And you're on call all the time. And I don't think you can think and be contemplative and make good judgments and think when you're under that kind of pressure nonstop. So I wish there was some way to kind of dial it back a little bit. I don't know how to do that. And just to uh, remind people of how long ago we're talking about this, you've always said one of your greatest mistakes was letting the TV cameras into the (laughs) briefing rooms. I don't think people would know that, you know, as late as the late 1990s that TV cameras were not allowed to film the briefings. It was not letting the TV cameras in, which I thought was important and good, and that should have been a change. It was allowing live coverage because the briefing is a briefing, and a briefing is like you get information from the White House, you see what their story is, you see what they're saying, but then you should go test it against other sources of information. And I think the mistake I made was allowing it to go live because then it became live once everybody got titillated by Monica Lewinsky and anything going out at the White House that day. And it became kind of a live television production. When I was at the State Department, the briefing was embargoed until the end, which meant that journalists had to make decisions about, well, what news was made? Was there anything newsworthy? What do we report? 
but it wasn't all just splattered out live on television. And I think that the big mistake was not allowing TV in. It was not, it was allowing live coverage. And did you notice a change in the behavior of the reporters in the room, too, with it being broadcast live? Yeah. I mean, there was more posturing, and suddenly we had cameras up right next to me on the podium because they wanted to get live shots of the cutaway of the correspondent asking the questions, and that that was a totally different environment. So it changed the nature of that daily engagement. Of course, now is not a daily engagement. Maybe that's one of the reasons why the Trump White House doesn't do daily press briefings anymore, because it detracts from the president's message, which is ultimately, you're there to reflect what the president thinks, what the president is talking about doing, advocating, proposing. And they've just decided it's much better to let the president do that himself every morning. You've covered the White House so many times. In some ways, that's nirvana. You get to wake up every morning. You know exactly what's on the president's mind in the morning. Like, what could be better than that? You hadn't had that in other presidential administrations. Yeah, it strikes me that historians are so often it's like, 50 and 60 years later, you find out what the president was thinking or doing at any given moment. That's not going to be an issue with this one. No, you know, every single morning, sometimes early in the morning, right. what's on the president's mind every day. And that is good. But then there has to be the opportunity to follow up and dig deeper and find out, well, what's behind that thought that the president had that he tweeted this morning? And that's why we need the daily press briefing. We need a press secretary or a spokesman or someone who comes out and says, okay, well, here's what the president was talking about. Here's what's behind this thought. And we've lost that. And, and, and not I think just at the White House, at the State Department, State at the Department, Pentagon. State Department, the Pentagon, everywhere. And that really is a subject of great despair to me because I think— It's not because it's the personality of the person at the podium. It's the process of getting the answers and getting clarity around what the policy is and answering questions about why are you doing this, why are you doing that, that really helps the American people understand what their government is all about. And we've lost a lot of that, I think. It strikes me in in your comment about posturing that this trend is a real one. And I was thinking with the Women's World Cup conversation about whether or not to use our platform to go to the White House, with which we disagree, there was something about an acknowledgement of platform. There's a piece today in the Times about we all have one. The president has a really big one. He's always had a really big bully pulpit, but this one's got a particularly large platform, whatever it is, 54 million Twitter followers. Um, but so too does the World Cup team, and so too does every member of Congress, every senator, et cetera every journalist, and it's almost as if there's an accelerant that speeds the whole thing up so much that it gets lost, that the ability to actually do the tracking down of the real story gets lost. I wonder if you see this sort of platform revolution affecting the White House today, the idea that the producers used to control and now the consumers have to allow the briefing anyway. Well, it's a really interesting observation. I think people now have platforms for commentary, punditry, making a statement that didn't exist before because they can actually use and leverage prominence that they have. I'm so delighted. We we are talking here just in the wake of the Women's World Cup victory. And that team had just such 
interesting ways in which they commented on so many things. Megan Rapinoe, Rapinoe. not being the least of them, because they all had things to say. And using your moment to say something important about what you believe and how it affects the changes in our country, I think that's becoming something that's kind of a norm now. I mean, if you get your moment and you get a chance to say something that's going to make a difference, you should take the opportunity. That's probably not a bad thing in our democracy. People will pay attention. It may not last very long. I mean, we got a short attention span now. You'll be gone next week. But I like the idea that people will suddenly get some thoughts presented to them that make them think and cause them to reassess where they are. Now, the thing that I worry about is what we call confirmation bias, that we only go to the places where we get the information that confirms what we already think. And there is some evidence that that happens. So people go to you know, the news sources that they rely on and that reflects what they think, and they are not opening themselves to other ideas. And I think, by the way, given our conversation, I think the church has some obligation in this area. Most churches, faith communities are very reluctant to talk about politics, but it's like one of the few places left where people gather with different opinions, different backgrounds, different political beliefs, social beliefs, and that's where we've got to engender conversations that will be really more loving because we've got to have some place where we go talk these things through with people we disagree with. And there's very little opportunity to do that in our social culture now. So I hope that is something that faith communities really take on as a serious obligation. But haven't the churches themselves been infected by some of this political tribalism? I mean, you certainly see evangelicals, um, their embrace of a three times married serial <laughs> adulterer, but and yet claiming this is like the best friend the evangelicals have had. And why did the Democrats so struggle with coming up with their own faith narrative? I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is the faith community on the progressive Democratic side was very engaged during the 1960s, particularly around civil rights, Martin Luther King, others who led, and then anti-war protests, and then became very disillusioned because they didn't really see that their own faith was being reflected in things that happened and, you know, that as we moved through the 70s and the 80s. And at that point, the rise of the moral majority, a conservative evangelical voice in politics really seemed to define what it meant to be religious and political. And we're seeing a little bit of a counteraction to that now because I think we are seeing the rise of a more progressive centrist faith voice in a lot of our political discussions. And I do think for all that we talk about the separation of church and state in our culture, I think there are people of faith who've got strong beliefs that they need to bring into the public discussion, into the public square. And we need to see more of that. And there's been a reluctance to do that on the part of many, particularly on the Democratic side. And part of that is political because we know people of faith are people of faith and who are deeply religious 
tend to be more conservative. But as you mentioned, they bend a little bit when it comes to someone like Donald Trump, who doesn't reflect any of the real values that they profess, but they have an agenda politically that matches what Trump is about. I think the same thing is true on the other side, that there are people of faith who've got strong beliefs, who've got a strong interest in doing things about climate change, protecting God's creation, protecting the people who are created in God's image. There's a lot of language there that I think could be very helpful to people on the other side of the equation. So I hope we see more active discussion about faith and values in what we expect of our political leaders. And we're seeing some of that. We've seen, particularly on the Democratic side recently, we've seen some candidates really stepping up to that challenge. You know, maybe as a follow-up to Karen's question about that, you said something in one of the pieces you wrote about listening, and the center may not hold. The, you quoted Moynihan, your old boss, who used to cite that famous poem time and again. William Butler Yates. Yep. Thanks, Philip Hurt. The center will not hold... Mere anarchy will you be loosed upon upon the world. Yes, 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 yes. And yet you say that there is a place perhaps for congregations, even in a town like this one where people have strong opinions, and the instinct is not to listen. You listen by waiting your turn to speak, but you're not really listening. Why do you think that the art of listening, as you describe in that piece, is part of the solution? Well, because listening to others and learning how to respond effectively when you disagree is a learned art, and we're not practicing that very well now. I mean, their arguments tend to be what we see on cable television all the time, people just going back and forth at each other and not really trying to engage each other in real conversation. But I think if you're in a church— or a temple or a synagogue or wherever, you tend to want to be respectful to the other people who are there. The unfortunate thing is that most of those places of worship don't have leaders that are equipped to lead those kinds of conversations because they flee from the issues of politics and controversies of the day because they don't want to offend anyone in the congregation. They don't want people to walk out of the pews and not come back. So training our clergy and our people who lead worship to really engage in public dialogue around issues that are important in the public square, that, that's a big challenge. So that happens to be exactly what I'm working on now in my second career at Theological Seminary. That's what I do for a living now. I really think if we, you can get some expertise and how do you guide conversations like this? At least there's one place on Saturday or Sunday when people go to worship that they say, okay, I'm going to stay around for the coffee hour because we're going to have a good conversation. And I'm going to disagree with people who might say something, but I will still love them at the end of the day. And there's something to be said for that. How much of this is a generational challenge? Because at least the numbers you see, young people are drifting away from organized religion. I mean, how do you get them back? Well, I think that's exactly how you do it. I think when you look at the data about what we call the nuns, these are not the nuns with the habits, but the N-O-N-E-S, the people who have no affiliated religious engagement, 
the thing that they most cite as the reason why they are not affiliated with any kind of organized religion is that you don't practice what you preach. We go and hear these great stories about how we're going to love each other and go do things and take care of the poor and the homeless and the hungry and the imprisoned, and then you don't do anything about it. So if they see a more engaged church doing the things that live out what they profess to be their faith, I think then there would be a little more attachment to it. I think the other thing, given that I've got three 20-year-old kids, having church at 11 o'clock in the morning is probably not a good idea. You probably have to have alternative formats for faith engagement that is a little more conducive to what young people's schedules look like. And I think that's a separate question, but I think it's part of the equation too. Well, I've got a couple of 20-somethings too, and I'm a Catholic, and that's <laughs> been a bit of a challenge as well because, you know, well, my, you, can, my, you have Saturday night mass. <laughs> but, my, but my kids look at the church and say, when they clean up their own house, yeah. maybe we'll be more interested in hearing what they have to say. Well, I think that's very true. I mean, I think there are some unique challenges within the Catholic profession of faith. But we have those in the Protestant denominations, too, that there are different ways in which people sort of engage organized religion. And some of our structures and some of our polity, as we would call it, is not conducive to giving people the opportunity to kind of freely experience. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should have like a spiritual menu that you can choose A, B, and C, because there are some things that we profess to believe if we are in certain faiths, in my case, the Christian faith, but how you hold true to those and how you live them out in life and how you walk the practice of your faith in reality, I think that would make a difference to a lot. I know it would make a difference to my kids. If they, and they see the stuff that we do at my church and they say, okay, I'm, I'm down with going to the... Uh, hunger relief program that we're doing on Saturday, but I'm not going to go to church on Sunday. You know, so they have kind of a different take on what it means to be expressing their faith. We should be open to that and acknowledge that. But we have to acknowledge that the decline in participation in organized religion is a wake-up call, that there has to be something if we want people to spiritually connect with their faith that has to change. I wonder if I could ask one last question. You know, Karen, of course, is just finishing, well, she's partway into a book about Nancy Reagan and her faith, if I understand correctly. It's an interesting contrast because she actually did not grow up with a lot of faith. Near the end of her life, she was much more, I think, open and searching. But certainly President Reagan was a man of very deep faith. And it, it was very interesting. One of the things I discovered at the Reagan Library that apparently nobody had ever looked at. It was in a box of her personal possessions from the last house that she lived in. But her father, her adoptive father, and the man she admired more than anyone else in the world, absent her, except for her husband, was an atheist. About three weeks before he died, President Reagan sat down in the White House and wrote him a long letter begging him to accept God before he died. And in this four-page handwritten letter, in Ronald Reagan's handwriting, not a word crossed out on White House stationery, 
he lays out his own religious beliefs just more clearly than I had ever seen it. And it was just so interesting then to find this letter tucked away in a box of personal possessions that Nancy Reagan kept with her till she died. Karen, how did how did he express his faith in the, that letter? He said that he talked about the resurrection and how either this really happened or Jesus perpetrated the biggest fraud ever known to man. And then he went through all of his reasons for believing that it wasn't a fraud. And a lot of quotations from scriptures. He talks, interestingly enough, about—it's a really odd little episode, but how he had a digestive problem that his doctor couldn't diagnose except that when he was governor. And then he finds out that a bunch of congregations around California are praying for him, and all of a sudden the problem goes away. And then at the very end, he says to Nancy Reagan's father, you, like I, have been blessed by a long and happy marriage. But if you want to spend eternity with your wife the way I know I'm going to be spending eternity with mine, you need to accept Jesus before it's too late. Hmm. A good friend of mine, Brian McLaren, who was the head of a big non-denominational congregation here locally in the Mid-Atlantic region, he said, what we do here on earth now is just a warm-up act for how we spend eternity. You know, I have a question after recently diving into our colleague Pete Wainer's book, The Death of Politics. It's called The Death of Politics. It's really misnamed because it really is a bet. It's a formula for how you kind of a rebirth That's for right. politics. I just got done reading it, uh, and it's a terrific, terrific book. That's one. Pete Wainer. Yeah, it's one of the best things. Kind of, we'll link yeah. to it in the show notes. Yeah. But, um, you know, one of the points it makes is that people can live out of their political frame rather than out of their faith frame. And his hope, of course, is to do the latter. And you were so close to the Clintons. I recall working a little bit with a guy called Doug Coe who took Hillary to Mother Teresa's funeral. And he basically often said, you wouldn't know it if you're on the evangelical conservative right and you're kind of so sure that the Clintons are horrible people ruining the world, but actually. And I wonder if you would comment at all on, on your perception of their faith. Well, Bill Clinton would readily admit that he is a self-confessed sinner of magnitude proportions. And that he also would say, I am blessed by the grace given me by the forgiveness that I am unmerited to receive. So in that sense, he is a fully-blown Baptist Protestant from the South who understands that uh, forgiveness is something that comes only from the grace of God. And I think he probably believes he has to use that gift as best he can. And I think he tried to. He was completely, clearly, wantonly a sinner. <laughs> and, you know, well documented through a variety of means. But I think he also, at the same time, earned trust from the American people because they said, whatever sinner you are, we still believe that you believe in the goodness of the American people, and you're trying to do stuff for the goodness of us all. And I think that saved him. That rescued him. Now, he had a strong economy, and he had some other good things going for him, but I think that made a big, big difference. 
elect Karen, there's a contrast to the current president, which I think is a very different faith story that could be told. But I think Clinton's is genuine. And he, I travel a lot with him. He had a well-worn Bible with lots of things in it, and he was serious about that. But we all know he was capable of all the human frailties that all of us are bound to live out as sinners. What's the old joke about Methodists are always looking for good works, and Baptists think they are the good works? (laughs) (laughs) That is very, very interesting. I mean, one of my criticisms of Hillary's campaign was that she did not talk more about her own strong Methodist roots. Because I worked with her campaign and worked with her some on that, and she is very deeply rooted in a Methodist tradition. It's kind of this, we don't talk about it, we just try to do it. And there's something to be said for that. But on the other hand, professing your faith and describing how it frames where you're going to go as president, I think is a very important thing. And we're seeing now in the emerging 2020 campaign, some of our candidates getting stepping up and beginning to talk a little bit more about faith and how it informs who they are and what they're doing, which I think is a really great thing. Mm hmm. And Karen, can you tell us how that compares with what you're learning from your research about the Reagan's faith and maybe how that developed? I just think the contrast in faith between Ronald and Nancy Reagan, you see it after he almost dies from an assassination attempt. And Ronald Reagan in the hospital, when he finds out the name of the young man who tried to kill him, decides in the hospital that he's got to forgive him. He writes it in his diary that I won't be able to go on unless I can let go of this and forgive him. But he also comes out of it believing that God spared him for a reason, that God has a plan. And it allowed him a certain peace about going about his business and doing his job as president. Nancy Reagan, at that point in her life, did not have that faith. And so it is then that she, on the advice of her friend Merv Griffith, the TV talk show host, begins consulting an astrologer. She is looking for anything she can get that can give her a sense of having some kind of control over managing this danger around her husband that she is now just completely terrified about. And so I've talked to people who knew both Reagans very well. And they say that, you know, in their two very different reactions to this life-changing, almost life-ending event, you really can see the contrast in somebody who comes from a very deep faith tradition and somebody who doesn't. But I think at the very, very end of her life, Nancy Reagan brings in Billy Graham, and she just begs him for assurances that there is, in fact, eternal life and that she is, in fact, going to be with her husband again. And I think, again, she was a different person at the end of her life than she was at that point. Is that the story the way he told it to you? Very similar, but it kind of goes to the question of how does God intervene in human history, which is, you know, really what Scripture is about. And I have come around to the belief that God does not have a plan. 
you know, we hear, oh, God's, that's God's plan. There's God's, God doesn't plan for some poor two-year-old kid to die of kidney cancer. You know, that's not, not a God plan. I think God lives with us and interacts with us and deals with our heartache and suffers with us. But God did not create us to be imago day in the creation of God and the image of God doesn't mean we're all God. It means that we live life as human beings and we are going to suffer through heartbreak and awful things. And then God will suffer and those awful things with us and then be there to create a different alternative pathway for us. I think it also connects the idea of, of God to history. Yes. Because my professor at HDS used to say, you know, Brian Hare, Catholic Jesuit, would say, we're saved to faith individually, we're saved to the church, but then eventually salvation applies to the world. And if you don't have a sense that salvation applies to history and the world, it doesn't make sense of the magnitude of all this, and for sure not the presidency, right? I mean, these people who witnessed so much, including screaming people when they got to the car, it's just, it's too much for God to have nothing to do with that that right, project right. and that telos. But the difference with a good Jesuit like Brian Hare would be, we Protestants do not believe that you work your way through this, and through good works into salvation or grace, that it's an unmerited gift that you give. But if you have that unmerited gift, it will be reflected in the works that you do. And I think that Fruit, is not effort. Right. I think that is a very important distinction that how you live your life and how you live it out is a reflection of whether you're in that state of grace. That's a theological question that I think is a profound one and has lots of different dimensions to it, but it's a great one. It's how do we live in the light of God and what does it look like for real? If you enjoyed today's episode, tell a friend and let us know if you decide to take Mike's advice to heart and talk public life in some new way in your house of worship. Thanks for listening.